KZSU Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Lalano. This is the Henry George Program. This show all about land use, local politics, and building critical change. Today the program, we have on John Lashley. John Lashley is currently a candidate for Mountain View City Council. John is a founding member of the Silicon Valley Democratic Socialists of America, and he's on to talk about what his Democratic Socialist platform is for Mountain View City Council. It's a platform that has gotten him the endorsements of, of both Silicon Valley, DSA, as well as South Bay Yimby. And at the end, we uh, even have some time to talk about some theory. John explains a bit what a Marxist perspective on housing is. But without further ado, let's just get into things. So welcome, John. Hey, thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we've known each other for a few years uh, through the Silicon Valley DSA, uh, but yeah, you're in the middle of something very exciting right now. Uh, you are running for city council here in Mountain View. Uh, you know, so it's I feel for for a city of its size in this area, I don't think you've seen you know anyone seen kind of a campaign uh, that is so openly radical in in quite some time. Uh, I mean, do you think that's fair? I mean, I, I feel it's very fair, but I just how do you describe your own campaign? And just I'd say. What what made you get into this whole thing? Yeah, so I guess the way I'll put it is, uh, it, it is it is radical, and that I want to change some things because I feel like in some ways the city is moving in the wrong direction, and in some ways it's moving in the right direction, but the wrong speed, the wrong <laughs> we totally got the speech wrong. Um, so yeah, radical meaning that you want to change things not radical meaning that you want to start from scratch mountain view is a great place to live i love living here and the way i've been talking about it is i want to i want to fix the problems that would prevent working people like me from living here for the rest of my life like ability to enter the the housing market you know and yeah and that could either be long term rent stability or it could be you know purchasing a house but um, the housing market is what keeps a lot of people out and it makes a lot of people leave and displaces people. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the, focused. I mean, continue. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still marathoning that first question. Um, <laughs> sure. I would say that, uh, you know, I am a democratic socialist and uh, my activism has been in DSA. And the reason I'm running is all the campaigns I've done to protect rent control, expand it, you know, create housing stability for social justice, for police reform, defunding the police, investing in the community. We always run up against that brick wall of city council. And, and the analysis there is they really only care about one thing. They don't care about how many emails you write them or you get, you organize the community to write them. They don't care about how many people you line up to speak a public comment although that can gum up the work sometimes and it's important to build solidarity with the community that way and organize. Um, but what they do care about is can you beat them at the ballot box? Can you beat them electorally? And so through this campaign, as I've consistently beat the drum about my issues and heard other candidates pick up those issues, candidates I would not have expected to, um, that's how you can see change beginning to happen in the electoral side, not just the community organizing side. So that's why I'm running and having a great time and great community response. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, this feels this feels healthy to me, which is, I mean, I guess the unhealthy part is I feel that there is a reactionary wing of Mountain View politics, you know, as you see in almost all cities. I feel Mountain View, uh, I have, you know, it's not as bad as Palo Alto, but it's it, there's some real bad eggs in my in my mind. But then you have, I think it's been kind of a back and forth swing between the real bad council people and then i think you know people who have a lot more you know humane responses it's kind of like how do they how do they break down on the rv ban and i think there's obviously i think two big sects that people are like oh yeah you know these people are effectively subhuman exterminate them and the people say you know not so fast but i just i do feel the model of change between these two things it just goes back and forth and i am unrepentantly you know radical myself i don't really think incremental change on this is really going to slowly bring us to a better place i think you need a lot more bomb throwers to to kind of upset Uh-oh. this this you know back and Uh-oh. forth and not not accusing you of, of carrying bombs okay, but i good. think that uh hope, hopefully you know hopefully i think it it you know anything i think uh, a bit a bit extreme can shake things up a bit and i i i, I mean i think you know call it the overton window call it whatever I mean, is is that? I'm kind of curious. Like, well, is your internal model of change? Does it relate to kind of you know what people consider normal? And do you think it can be picked up by the you know more you know the, the center left as it will? Or you know, what, what do you what do you kind of see the future being? So, okay, Mark, I gotta be honest with you. I'm a begrudging politician now. I don't like it, but I am a politician. And so first thing is, I got to say, I got to disagree with you a little bit. All right. You talked about how effectively in 2019, the city council's response to uh, homeless people living in vehicles was they're subhuman and exterminate them. And I actually did go to a lot of those hearings um, at city council, and I heard public comment. Um, from some of our neighbors who who don't want a systemic approach to solving homelessness. They want to get the homeless people out of the city as quickly as possible by banning them from sure. living in vehicles. And um, I don't think that's an extermination urge. And I don't think they treated them as subhuman. I just think that it is a reactionary impulse. You know, get these people out of my city. This is a blight. And I don't agree with that reactionary impulse. But it's not. They don't. They don't want to solve things. Certainly. No, and and the thing I'm objecting to is just that word extermination, because especially because in 2020, we do see an exterminationist impulse from the federal government. They do sure. want to actively do forced relocations, especially of racial, ethnic minorities, immigrant population, and that's not the people we're seeing in Mountain View. So I don't. I don't agree with that. And I've got you understand. I've got to say that. Because I don't think it's true, but also because I'm running to represent the whole city, right? Okay. Yeah. But the better the the basic question here, which is a really great question, is you know you talk about incremental change versus meaningful systemic change, and what I gotta say is this: change happens exponentially. The farther we are along an axis, a conservative axis, or a liberal, or a democratic socialist axis the farther we are along there, the more we snowball, okay? So for a long time in the post-war consensus in America, we were building up social programs, institutions, and really the zenith of that was you had a, really a terrible politician, oh sorry, a terrible person like Richard Nixon, who was a good politician, terrible person, he was instituting things like the EPA, 
because that was how liberal change had snowballed for in a, in a good way institutionally and then we saw a reaction after that in the other direction and now we're to the point where the only thing we can conceive of is solutions through market so yeah um my point is if we want to move back in a less market direction towards a more humane direction and we want to we want to start organizing and mobilizing the productive forces in our communities for good to solve our housing crisis to solve our our pandemic crisis when we get started in that it's going to be very slow because we've got to stop the forward progress of the snowball and push it in the other direction and whether we're doing incremental change or whether we're doing real systemic change, it's all going to look the same in the short term because it, we're, we're starting from zero. And in an exponential sense, when you start pushing in the other direction, the speed of change is proportional to the magnitude of how far you've gone. And so as we build our muscles, you know, if, if I'm elected to city council and, for example, we start, you know, this is a phrase I use on this program that I don't normally use in campaigning. If we start to organize the productive forces in Mountain View that are immensely talented, educated, capable workforce to build housing, to acquire um, rental properties that are distressed and rehabilitate them for the public good. And if we start to add to our municipal portfolio of real estate in terms of business investments or build it in terms of real estate, that's all going to be very slow to get going. And so that's why I think the big tent approach is so important. It's so important to run as a democratic socialist and to really stake out your policy positions like I have. And we can go into those later, I hope. But um, sure. to also be open to working with anyone who wants to make things better. And I'll give you one quick example. On Tuesday night, we had a number, I would say three, three city council members spoke in favor of acquiring um, housing stock, real or not just real estate, but uh, rental housing, acquiring it municipally and rebuilding it as needed, you know, improvements um, in order to make it permanently affordable. Because the question is, how do we want to build our, how do we want to entrench our affordability? So some of those were more progressive, some were liberal, some were more conservative, but you had three, okay? And as a democratic socialist on city council, we'll see how many allies I have. You know, there'll be some good progressive allies, but there will be some more conservative people I'll be able to work with too. But in the short term to get change going, it, it's going to be slow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're definitely right when you talk about uh, you know, kind of the snowballing effect, you know, call that vicious circles, you know, virtuous cycles, whatever. Uh, I mean, I think that the neoliberal consensus we've seen since the 70s, you know, we've been very much living in it. And you look at, you know, what are choices that are made? Because I, I think a lot of people want to feel like, you know, it's, you know, success is, you know, an outcome. You're trying to switch. I mean, a lot of people talk about like Red Vienna, you know, we want Red Vienna. They don't talk about it. it took decades to get to the point that you had the, the kind of foundation to build Red Vienna. Uh, and you talk about like, look at like the snowballing effect in the negative direction we're living in. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, public housing in the U.S. has yeah, been defunded uh, bit by bit, you know, uh, you know, un, you know, just, you know, operationally and just as far as starting it. But I think you look over in like Britain, uh, Thatcher, 
uh, you know, privatization was her MO. She privatized the council housing, the, the public housing stock. And, you know, what does that do when you privatize it? You kick more people off into having, I think, different material interests that continue to support more privatization. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's nasty because when you get that momentum going, uh, it's, it's a lot of work just to even turn in the opposite direction. And, you know, I, I think uh, I, I think what will it take to kind of, I think, you know, get your foot in the door as far as, you know, municipal housing, more vir- virtuous housing, but also make it so it snowballs. You know, it's about building a power base. It's about doing all sorts of things. And I'm, I'm optimistic it, it's possible. But, you know, we're it's 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 early yet, I guess, is, you know. Yeah. Let me just give you an example from Mountain View about we talked a little bit about the forces of action and reaction. All right. So action in you know uh, 10 years ago we zoned north bayshore neighborhood for all commercial that's a that's an action on the conservative side you know arguably but anyway so it's it's growth commercial growth and then you have a a more liberal reaction to that which was after an election we got a city council that zoned it for almost 10,000 units of only uh only residential um so that was an action and a, a liberal reaction. And then there was another reaction after that. The current council has, I would argue, made it a little difficult to even get that housing built. And we haven't seen any housing development in North Bayshore. We have this zoning here and we're sort of just waiting for developers to come in, the Goldilocks developers to come in. And, and why is it like that? Why has the municipality not said, well, we have a zoning, why don't we build housing to meet that? We lack a few things, right? So talk about the snowballing. We lack um, the knowledge of how to build effectively. For example, we have in our region, the productive forces to build housing, right? We've got the knowledge, we have the, the body, the brains, and the, we know the techniques of how to build housing we lack the relations of production to borrow from Marx. We aren't uh, socially constituted in a way where we know who to pick up the phone and call to purchase the services. Right. Uh, And so, so the more conservative elements of the city can say, we don't even know how to start. So we have to start building those muscles to surmount that valid objection. So when I say I'm in favor of building housing, public municipal housing, what I mean is we have to start by building those relations of production and really building those muscles up. And that that's going to take time and that's going to stretch longer than four years. And from the administration side, we're actually a little bit better. We actually know. So if the housing is built, we can contract with nonprofits, with housing operators and get it managed. So that's a little bit uh, taken care of. The position that I'm aiming for is to get to the point where we could say, well, we've contracted all these things out for the municipal ownership of housing. Now, can we bring that into the municipality? We're, We're at that position and I've heard some other candidates say, in general, we need to bring contracting services inside the city. So we're one step removed even from having that conversation. That's why it's going to take a long time. So it's not just overnight. It is going to be a long process. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded of, you know, it's, I think there's, I think there's a problem when, you know, efficiency and productive capacity has a negative tinge, because I think when you talk about, you know, you look at the effective socialist states, you know, if you're going to house all the people, look at Red Vienna, uh, you know, it takes a lot of capacity and coordination. And, you know, it's, uh, and I, you know, people will like critique, you know, the way we do transit in America versus the transit in Europe, for instance, is everything is just much more expensive here because it's kind of, you get started and you're not really serving the public. It really, there's a lot of people who kind of, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, it's who gum up the pipes because they kind of know this is almost more of a, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a money faucet. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a you know, yeah. uh, it's it's just it's a lot, a lot of people feed off it. I I have plenty of critiques of I think our entire affordable housing system, light tech at the federal level. It serves a lot of I think f- deeply inefficient, and I think just they're never going to scale up to really serve the needs we have. Uh, you know, you can say it's. Yeah, there's kind of a, a you know a nice motive, which is oh, let's do the public housing through tax credits. You know, the, the ultimate in kind of the free lunch neoliberal uh, kind of you know just razzle dazzle financialization. Uh, and then in the end, you get all these different nonprofit corps who kind of you know take it. You know, and and you know, a lot of good work is done to some extent, but it just is not commensurate <laughs> with the real need. And, you know, it's but you compare that to like, you know, uh, a real public housing program and you see, I mean, I, I would say a big difference is when you're serving the middle class, when you're serving kind of the bulk of people, you know, I think it's important that people say like this serves me, you know, and, the, and I, to me, that's a major part of the snowballing effect is, you know, it's when you get, you know, a feedback loop. And I think people love the library. People love, you know, stuff that like, you know, they really have a direct relationship with, but I think on the same token, people vilify means-tested public housing only for, you know, what is considered the, you know, underclass of society. And it's, it's, it's been, it's had a nasty history. And I think a lot has to do, I mean, talk about the, the racial, uh, you know, animus and, you know, hierarchy in America is definitely a major part of that. But it's, you know, it's, I, I, I think we need a kind of approach that's going to serve all people to really, to really move forward. Yeah, that's right. We do we do have to build housing that is that people of many different income levels do want to live in. It can't just be exclusively for the poor working class. It has to be for the middle class all the way up. And we have to do it in an integrated way, right? That's that's what I wanted to say there. I did want to return to I mean, you ra- you raised some very important points about the history of racism in housing and the need to be cross-racial, cross-class, inclusionary, and I totally agree with that. Don't want that to go by without being said. Extremely important. And I do want to return to a point you made in the first part of the question about the efficiency of different housing programs, because it's important to do the full analysis here. When we're getting started, you know, coming up to speed with any program, building our muscles to do it, it's going to be less efficient, become more efficient over time. But the private housing market gets a pass. The private, the market solution to problems always gets a pass in terms of efficiency. Economists incorrectly analyze how efficient the private market is because they ignore an important fact. The goal of a private market solution is create a place where people can meet, have one-on-one interactions, and have sometimes many one-on-one interactions. And every decision Every allocation will be left up to 
the individual to make their own decision. You have 83,000 people in Mountain View. You have 83,000 squared one-to-one relationships possible. And everyone is making a decision. That's, to me, the pinnacle of inefficiency. Where we have to move, what we're talking about here is planning. We do planning in Mountain View. We actually do a lot of it. We do a general plan. We do a specific plan for all our neighborhoods. And it's wonderful. (laughs) Is is it? Okay. (laughs) We'll get back to that. If we do it in a democratic way, it's wonderful. Okay. So what we're doing is answering the question, what are the limits of the private market that we'll tolerate here? We're not matching need to locality necessarily. Um, By centralizing and by studying where do we need housing allocation, we can make these decisions more efficiently and prevent prevent you, prevent me from worrying about my housing security in the future. Um, so that's the comparison I wanted to make. By centralizing where to build, et cetera, there will be less chaos about we zone for all this housing in North Bayshore, why is it not being built? You know, Families will be able to live with housing security and make their long-term decisions about where they want to live and work and raise their family in a more predictable way. So private market gets a pass when actually it's very chaotic and actually it's very inefficient in terms of offloading that decision to every single resident. Yeah, I would say, I mean, personally, if there's any time, I mean, what is is the economic definition of efficiency? It's when the price of something being sold tends to, uh, you know, uh, reach the marginal cost of production. And where do you see that happen? You see that start to happen, you know, maybe in like, exurban suburban sprawl it's like you do get like a bunch of single-family housing developers just stretching off you know out to tracy and beyond and i mean i think that's about as efficient as it gets i think it's bad you know i think it's bad that we build sprawl but i think inside the urban core it's among the most inefficient you know you talk about kind of what is the actual necessary resources and labor that goes into it and what do you get at the end and the percentage of just kind of resources being sucked away to unproductive ends is immense, you know, and I, I think that's the key. It's like, you know, we do a little bit of, of planning, I think, in probably the, the, the you know, not, not the key ways we need to, but uh, I, I think at the end, the outcomes are just bad. I mean, you look at the prices, this is, this is, you know, the prices don't lie as far as just how badly it's working and the prices are awful here. Yeah, I mean, and the important thing to keep in mind is marginal cost equals marginal revenue. That's the solution to the supply-demand problem. When you have a free market, a, a homogeneous good, you have homogeneous consumers and producers with, with no disparate interest, and you're talking about a commodity, which house, housing is a commodity, but also it's, a, it's an investment. Uh, and so these are all yeah. – and the, the important thing to always remember is that the market itself is socially constructed. You know, we're oh, yeah. we are as a city making our zoning decisions. We're making all sorts of decisions about where and how housing can be built. And finally, the uh, we don't we don't really have buyers and sellers in the housing market because you know, for one, we're creating this Prop 13 incentive at the state level to hold on to it as long as you can. And uh, the value of housing is sorry. I guess I should say the use value the exchange or investment value is totally decoupled from the market. So the market prices is way even higher than those. 
So we've got a lot of problems to solve before we apply that econ 101 analysis. But I agree with you in general. Things are things are a little I messed mean, up in the housing market in California. Yeah, I, th I think my, my main point is people are much too ready to throw econ 101 at housing markets, which yeah. I think are perhaps one of the least useful fits for it. <laughs> but it's it's very funny that you still get all of the uh, there is no alternative privatization fans who say privatization is efficient. Let's just pull that lever. And, you know, it's, it, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, the outcomes are not usually, uh, you know, so, so hot. Uh, yeah, talk, talk about your platform. I, I, see, I see you you have a bunch of, uh, I guess, you know, pillars or whatever. But uh, you talk about you know, kind of what you're, what, you know, if you were uh, put in there, what, you, what you'd fight for. That's why I came on the show to talk about it. Thank you. Um, I, have, I have a lot of priorities. And I get asked a question, what are your top three? So I guess, you know, I'll go into those. And that would be, pandemic recovery, police reform, and housing crisis. And um, just a real quick note, so the pandemic recovery, this is one of those cases where we're, we're pointed in the right direction, but we are 10% of where we need to be, you know, not in terms of money allocation, but in terms of how much um, person power we've invested in this to make a just pandemic recovery. So we have in Mountain View actually the the rental and mortgage assistance program and we've spent about three million dollars toward this end um, and we've helped some people stay in their homes but we really need to to go up on that and invest much more in that in a big way and um we we saw a lot of turbulence from the state around you know what what will the law be around can you ban evictions and and i've been in favor of eviction moratorium now it's somewhat questionable with under ab 3088 you know whether or how you can do that or if this will change after January or February. So. Yeah, I mean, there's it's it's such. I mean, I think uh, there's going to be an upcoming episode about this statewide intervention. But yeah, it, it's really unfortunate how it ties the hands of localities to not yeah. do better than this pretty crappy, you know, statewide, you know, uh, fix. You know, and in Mountain fix. View, we actually passed an ordinance to extend the eviction moratorium to the end of the state of emergency, and we missed the. 3088 deadline by three days. Unbelievable. So I, I'm over here saying I've been campaigning on this eviction moratorium. I love it. This is a political win for me because we got my policy passed. That's, that's wonderful. But we missed the state said, no, you missed the deadline by three days retroactively. So um, it was a it was a huge punch to the gut. But in terms of principles, the reason we need the eviction moratorium, the re whether you know we can do it or not, in what way, the principle is we need to keep everyone in their home because every eviction right now is not just a public policy failure, it's a public health risk. Um, but also I'm in favor of helping our small businesses out in Mountain View because um, a lot of them are still in business and talking to them, campaigning, they're frequently at 10% of their prior demand, their pre-pandemic demand. Um, and what is politically capable of being passed through the council next year is somewhat in, in doubt. We don't know what the council is going to look like. But I am in favor of loans, grants, or investments. And a lot of, a lot of candidates are in favor of loans and grants. And where I'm differentiating myself is um, this: we have a blueprint. We know how to do public investment to keep businesses afloat. And um, you and I lived through the Great Recession. We remember the TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and we remember the federal government doing public investment. In Mountain View, we have a lot of strategic reserves to keep our head above water, 
And we, I am in favor of expanding corporate taxation to close our upcoming budget shortfall. And we have access to money where we can keep our small businesses in, pro, in um, operation. The goal here and the thinking is no one did anything wrong. No one should be suffering during the pandemic if we're able to prevent it, and we are. The goal here is to put our economy on ice for public health as much as possible, to keep people in their homes and when they are working to keep them safe with protective equipment or whatever. And we can do that in the city by investing in our small businesses, giving them grants and loans to keep them in place, and in some cases negotiating or mediating between businesses and landlords. We saw in the case of a business called Whites in Mountain View, I think the city could have stepped in to help mediate that. Um, and keep our people in their homes, keep our businesses able to function, not going out of business. So we can pick up next year, hopefully, fingers crossed next year, um, and take it from there. But the city of Mountain View is in a very, very safe, stable, capable position. We have strategic reserves. We have untapped corporate taxation that I'm in favor of expanding on our very large businesses, our Google, Microsoft, Intuit, LinkedIn, Pure Storage, et cetera, um, to stay afloat. So I'm not worried about the city and I want to do more for the residents and small businesses. Yeah, I mean, that's like when you talk about investment, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, am, am I uh, right to say this is kind of, you know, investing would mean the city would actually have some sort of equity in, in the kind of community businesses in the end? Yeah, take, for example, uh, Red Rock Coffee Shop in Mountain View. It's actually a beloved small business in Mountain View. And they were uh, going to go under and they did, well, as I understand, I don't have any special knowledge there. Um, they were they were in tough tough situation. And they opened a GoFundMe for um, pretty good amount of money. I don't remember exactly the amount, but they were able to raise their goal in donations and GoFundMe because they're so beloved and well known in the community and the region, and so many people and um, you know business people and just regular people like you and me knew this, and and I took them money too. You know, I'm, I'm on their list, um, but not every small business is able to do that. Um, I know some in my neighborhood are having a tough time and if they opened the GoFundMe, they wouldn't raise as much as Red Rock did. But the city government can say, we have an interest in keeping our businesses in place as employers and uh, we, can, we can purchase a share maybe of the business to keep you in place. And that would be an ownership share. And the city wouldn't necessarily hold on to it forever. Like we saw in the Great Recession, they were later sold off when, when things were better. You know, we can certainly wait um, wait till after the pandemic, wait till after the financial and fiscal crunch is over and we could liquidate that. And that would be money that would be ready for a better social investment. Could be housing or could be whatever in the future, strategic reserve itself. So so as a democratic socialist, you, you wouldn't be in favor of kind of, you know, retaining kind of a portfolio of, of all equity? Because I feel like that's kind of, <laughs> you look back, it's a, it's a missed opportunity, I think, to have kind of, you know, a real like miter plan kind of kind of intervention is, you know, TARP, they took the risk in, they got their money back in the end, the risk worked off, but they kind of didn't really retain this portfolio. And I, I don't know, it's, you know, this is kind of, it's a dream of many in order to have kind of the fact we do, it reflects the fact that, you know, our private property is a creation of the state. You know, there really should be a more reciprocal 
uh, institution in which the state actually, you know, kind of reflects this in, in their holdings. Meidner plan. I'm glad you said Meidner plan because that's a term I'm not using on the campaign very much. That's something I'm thinking. Oh, about. that doesn't and excite the listen- crowds. Your listeners will know what Meidner plan is. Okay, so good. We established that. So let's talk about what is the more effective, if you're a democratic socialist, what is the more effective investment? All right, you're a democratic socialist and you're living in Silicon Valley where there are a lot of, there are a lot of allies and democratic socialists and people on the left for good progressives to work with, but there's a big, there's a big capital um, formation as well here. Uh, one of the biggest in the world. And you need to grow a social wealth fund. Well, good news, we have a social wealth fund in Mountain View. We have 22 real estate properties that uh, is mostly corporate real estate. And we're a landlord, a corporate landlord currently. We bring in about 15% of our general fund for that every year. It's it's amazing. I, I love that. That's you know, It's I mean, amazing. That's, that's the, yes. Yeah. And, and that's an effective in social wealth fund investment because you don't have to run very many public staff at all on its um on running the fund right you don't have to worry about landlords make money in their sleep as they say that's right and you you don't have to run much state capacity so you're never fighting a political battle to hold on to it all right now let's talk about if we do public investment in the pandemic and we come out with a 10 percent share of this dry cleaners and a 10 percent share of this restaurant or whatever that's not politically advantageous to the city in any way. It's not socially powerful because we don't have a controlling share in the businesses. And basically, as the municipality, we don't really we don't really gain much politically by having having large I'm sorry, having small shares, minority shares in these businesses. Um, so the the investment here would be more for um, keeping our infrastructure in place, our business infrastructure. And when the money comes out of that, those businesses, you have a story to tell. If I'm on the city council and it's 2023 and we're doing very well economically and the pandemic is over, God God willing, in 2023, um, you have a story to tell. You have your public real estate portfolio, which has been successful for a decade. And everyone knows that. You have done small business investment now and you can start talking about public enterprise as well. And I believe that you do these things in stages. You do a small, a successful small business, and then you carry it on. So the example of the Great Recession was we had shares, General Motors. We sold them off. I, I would have kept those shares and built on them, but we missed an opportunity when the money came back to do something productive and, and good with it. I won't miss that opportunity on city council. Um, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's a separate political battle um, than spinning up state-owned enterprise during the pandemic. That's too difficult. And I don't use this term too often, but that's a waste of political capital, I feel like. I mean, there is a re- there is a reason it's more of a federal, you know, big picture intervention. It's, it's yeah, I, I do agree. It takes a lot of overhead for a city of Mountain View side, size to to do this kind of stuff. And I really can't blame Mountain View for not wanting to do its own minor plan. <laughs> you know, it's a but bit, there's another opportunity. There's there's another opportunity. We just talked about it. There were three city council members. One uh, one is termed out, but there were two who will be on the city council next year, uh, not standing for re-election. Um, and they were talking about investment in, in rental properties. 
So that is, that's a door that's already open. You don't have to fight to get that door open. That's a place to put public yeah. investment. Whereas um, public investment in businesses for the purpose of doing a Meidner plan type thing, that's a political battle you have to fight. That door is not even open yet. So that's I mean, why I this goes to like, I mean, insofar as landlords are lazy, especially kind of if you can spin <laughs> off the property management side, it's, yeah, it's an ideal thing for the city to do investment because you just throw the money there and then, uh, you know, I mean, so in this sense, you know, as far as like rental properties, would this be like, you don't even know if it's going to be, you know, the city owns it or, you know, some sort of other conglomerate owns it. I guess if you're a renter, would it be the same difference? The only difference is in one of it, the city would get the coffers or would it be actually targeted for a different clientele? Where do you start? Um, where do you start is, I, th I think you start with the city has, so background a little bit. In Mountain View, we have a lot of old housing that goes back to the 50s, a lot. And yeah. uh, this is housing where we need, some some more conservative people call it naturally affordable housing, basically just means old, means housing that on the market fetches a low rental price. Um, and we have the question of how do we make this affordable? And one of the answers is you, you own it municipally. You don't necessarily run it. You would contract with nonprofits to start with for that. But like I said at yeah. the beginning, as you snowball, as you move more along in this progressive or left-wing direction of mobilizing the productive forces of the city for social good, you can talk about bringing that administration into the city in an efficient way. But for starters, I think it's city purchase and contract for um, for the the running of it, and the city would invest in in continual improvements. And this this solves. I mean, we saw this in the last couple of years. The evictions at Rock Street. Uh, these this was naturally affordable housing insofar as old housing, sixties or seventies or whatever. You know, the people 50s. running it, the landlord. It was fifties, yeah. No, I don't know uh, the Rock Street yeah. building, but we have a lot of housing from the fifties. Sure, sure. Uh, but the uh, in this case, the landlords actually, you know, this is the thing. It's like kind of like a sweetheart deal. They kind of, I mean, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that landlords are sweethearts, but they did not <laughs> squeeze their tenants as much as they could over the years. So in the end, like these people are now old and they have, you know, they have this, you know, these apartments. They, you know, feel like okay, we're done with this now. Uh, we kind of want to stop being landlords, and. You know, as it turns out, like what happens is like to get off their hands, it means that anyone willing to buy, it's like, I want to maximize the potential of this. They evict everybody and they turn it into a different uh, use. If, you know, and this is kind of the whole like Ellis Act, if you want to get out of the landlording business, you are protected and you can sell off to get your maximum dollar. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty horrifying in that sense. You know, how do you get out of the landlording business? Because right now we kind of have all this, you know, portfolio of people owning these old naturally affordable housing. And in the end, are they going to continue kind of operating naturally affordable forever? You know, or, or is it going to be slowly turned into townhouses and everything? You know, the places where the more affordable housing is in the city will be replaced with more expensive housing. If the city was holding on to these properties, you don't have a problem because there isn't these landlords who want to get out of business. The city will, if it wants to serve its clientele correctly, the city uh, citizens correctly, uh, it will want to keep this housing in perpetuity. And that's, to me, housing win. Maybe you could redevelop it. You can kind of, you know, turn the 50s construction into something that's bigger, but you can actually serve the people instead of just evicting them and putting them out in the street. Yeah, I think I think you make a good point. I think that um, 
the easiest thing to do is if if you have landlords who are operating housing not in the most ruthless way possible not operating at maximum price extraction and they want to get out of the housing business the easiest thing in the world is for the city to come in and uh buy it instead of demolishing it um yeah because the city the city does make that decision of what do we want demolished and we don't have to approve demolitions we can move in and become a agent in the, the the purchase and we had a successful story of doing that we heard from the public works director on tuesday about what the city council has to do to do that we have the blueprints to become a rental landlord rental housing landlord we know how to do it the the city staff are telling us how to do it and all we have to do is hey elect a, a smart young democratic socialist who wants to do it which is why i'm on your program can we talk about the other the other police reform as well yeah absolutely we go, talked go about ahead. pandemic recovery and um you know hell we even talked about housing crisis which is my third uh my third thing on my list and i want to say before we move on i am i get asked this question a lot are you in favor of of not permitting private housing you just want to go full public and, and no we i talk so much about we have to start slow and build up our muscles for housing for so truly social good, public housing, municipally owned housing. And while we're doing that, we have to continue to permit high density, um, transit oriented, walkable developments. I live near the East Wisman um, growth area, one of our two growth areas in Mountain View. Uh, and I am liking what I'm seeing on Logue Avenue uh, we're seeing a 407 unit high density building. They wanted to build it higher. The city even knocked down some height off of it. Um, but we came to, we're, we're coming to a decision uh, permitting that. That's great. And uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. We have very recently a proposal from Google. It does have some, some jobs, some office, but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. And what we have to do is keep permitting high density transit oriented development, which is good for our people, good for good for climate, you know, getting cars off the road and building walkable communities is something we gotta do. So I am totally in favor of expanding the permitting process and permitting more private development as well. So I, I just and if, you, if you ask if sure, sure. I mean that's the thing. I don't want to like I'm you know, get a lot of people be like emails if I don't say that, right? Sure. No, I mean, like, I feel like a lot of people be annoying. It's like, well, do you, how do you feel a market? It's like, I mean, I, I, I just really think even I, I don't think it really should be up to the kind of, uh, you know, kind of the, the hard left to be excited about the construction market rate. But I think it's worth saying that when you, when NIMBY forces prevent the, the construction of apartments, but continue to allow single family housing, I think you erode your power base in the long term. I think, you know, yeah, I mean, it's they, they tear down, uh, you know, triplexes and put up single family housing. And I think that's replacing a couple people who are renters who want cheaper housing with a couple like one homeowner who is very happy with their investment. Uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think, you know, dense renter housing creates a, a material interests where they're going to want to have cheaper and cheaper housing. And really, in the long term, if you're putting on, you know, my you know, economics, you know, economics hat, we'll say, I think this really means you're going to have municipal ownership, because I think that's how you create 
maximally cheap housing. So I, I, I consider this to be a step in the right direction. That's that's my theory, not to put words in your mouth, but yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I understand. Yeah, so I, I just got to say, I am in favor of, ex- of more expeditiously, quicker permitting private housing development. And we're seeing some high inclusionary numbers in those developments. I think the, in the Google development, their, their number for inclusionary housing is uh, 20% in their development. And there's talk among a lot of candidates about even kicking that up more, that minimum. So we can do, we can do harm reduction while we build our muscles for social good as well. Okay. Sure. I want to talk about police reform, broadly constituted. Yeah. Talk about, uh, maybe just start with like the budget uh, or start wherever you want. I mean, you could talk about, you know, kind of problems or talk about the budget. There's a lot of places to start from. Well, let's talk about um, what we're seeing on TV across the country, which is uh, a really horrifying use of force, brutalization, systemic racism, murders of George Floyd. We're seeing wanton, reckless ending of life, case of Breonna Taylor. And this is not, not a new thing. We all know this has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, and it's extremely well documented. And it's, it's horrifying so many people. And it's causing so many people to look at the systemic problems of policing and systemic racism, causing many people to look at that for the first time, which is, it's hopeful that people are paying more attention now. What we see in Mountain View is fortunately not the overt brutal use of force. And we're so thankful for that. We're thankful that the police officers in Mountain View do their job in a more professional way they don't use their firearms and we don't see brutality. We don't see chokeholds and, and we're grateful for that. You don't have to go that far. I mean, go to Palo Alto and there's been in the recent years, some extremely ugly cases of brutality at some mobile home parks and, and so on. It's uh... I, I do, I do have friends in Palo Alto. I do have friends in San Jose and we see different things there. And I'm not, I'm not judging the police as an institution when I say the Mountain View police are not using their, um, their guns, are not doing chokeholds. They're just reporting what's going on here purely. Um, sure, but we're, great, sure. we're grateful we don't have a, a use of force problem in Mountain View. So definitely not saying that, not demonizing that. Um, but that leads some people to think that we don't have any public safety problems in Mountain View. We do. In Mountain View based on the police data and based on uh, from the last five years going back to 2016 and based on the police on an own analysis and the analysis of uh, campaign zero called police scorecard.com we know that in mountain view we have a worse racially biased police arrest record it is Mm. worse than 68 percent of police departments in california and what i'm Mm. saying is if you're black, if you're Latinx, you are three to six times as likely compared to other race and ethnicities such as white people to be arrested compared to the share of the population you are. So the black population in Mountain View, maybe 2%, it may be eight to 10% of arrests, depending on what year. and 
we know why that's happening. I heard some candidates say, we don't, we don't know why that's happening. We, we need to do soul searching to figure it out. Well, I'm not putting it. I'm a systemic thinker. I'm a democratic socialist, a scientific socialist. I'm not putting this on the individual officers. I'm not saying they have a problem with the character of their heart or their brain that's leading them to make bad choices about who to arrest. We have a problem of over-policing in Mountain View. About half, our, half of our police, let's call them deployments, when an officer goes out, about half of those deployments are 911 calls. About half of them are officer-initiated. That is, the officer made the decision to deploy, to go out, to have a contact with the community. And that is over-policing. That is proactive policing. Proactive policing is a term that comes from broken windows theory, saying that you have to keep the this problem, this low-level problem in check to prevent high-level problems. It doesn't work. The Obama Department of Justice had rules against it, and the Trump Department of Justice in 2017 reversed those rules. In other words, the proactive policing that we do in Mountain View is supported by the Trump Department of Justice, which for anybody listening to this should tell you all you need to know about it. It's bad for our community. It's bad. It's producing bad racially and biased arrest outcomes, and we got to reduce it. So what's my plan to reduce it? I want to look at the functions of the police department in Mountain View that they're doing and look at what can be done by non-police officers, by public employees who are not police. And two things come to mind. I'll give you the big one first is traffic enforcement. We're seeing some cities in the Bay Area, like Berkeley as being a leader on getting non-police traffic enforcement. Okay, so I don't speed, but let's say I'm going along. Let's say I'm, I'm speeding. I don't do this. I'm a good guy. Um, and I get pulled over. Why is there a uniformed officer with a firearm coming at me to ask me to solve this problem of my speeding? You don't have to, the police don't use their guns irresponsibly. That's the first thing I covered. Why can't we take the firearm out of this situation and, and have traffic enforcement done by non-officers? And what that does is it takes away the opportunity to escalate that to a booking or to an arrest, like, or, or have an even worse outcome. We saw in the case of Sandra Bland or other people where, where the problem is escalated. It, it couldn't be escalated if you have a municipal employee who's not a police officer. And the one other example I want to give is, even if you don't agree with me about police uh, doing traffic enforcement, in Mountain View, we have a code enforcement office. It's under the city attorney. Okay, when this or that is out of code, when a tree grows over into the neighbor's yard, code violation maybe, um, the city attorney solves those, but it doesn't solve everything. Some code enforcement is done by the police office, and we can move that out. And for example, I'm not a smoker, but let's say I'm smoking in, in my apartment complex, and my neighbors call code enforcement for a smoking and apartment violation. A police officer goes out to do that. Why do we need a police officer to go out to investigate a smoke? It's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. And by centralizing those duties in the code enforcement office, we can do them more efficiently for cheaper. We can save money and we can ensure that those don't get escalated to bookings. And I realize this is long, but one thing I want to say is in Mountain View, we do have another problem, which is overspending on police. I've done this. I've looked at every city in Santa Clara County, their most recent budget, 
Mountain View in terms of police spending per capita is number four. We're $537 per resident per year. We're, we're, we're no Palo Alto. Palo Alto is number one by far, of course. Yeah, yeah. And their residents say they want more. So who knows? I'm but, not shocking again. <laughs> but in Mountain View, we're 537 per resident per year. Dollars. Okay. Number five is Milpitas. Milpitas is about the same. We're, we're each about 80,000 residents. So cities of comparable size. They're at 473 per resident per year. 60 bucks per person per year less. In other words, we're about $5 million. If we can go to the Milpitas level from four to five, we'd save about $5 million a year. And that's, that's a shocking amount of money for even a city of Mountain View size, what we could do with that. But I will say that you might think that, oh, Milpitas is maybe not as safe. They're a safer city. They spend less on the police. They have better public safety outcomes and in terms of crime rate. And I feel like there's something for us to, why is Mountain View such an outlier in Santa Clara County? So I would, as city council member, direct staff to study this, budgetary staff, so we can solve this inequity where we're overspending and not getting what we're paying. Yeah, I mean, you can look at this as just maybe it's the inertia that you put more in the police department of the years. You could look at more cynically and say that, you know, this is very much by design. This is to police you know, outgroups and, you know, the underclass and, you know, minorities that are, you know, not welcome. Uh, I mean, I certainly think the latter is true to some extent, uh, but, you know, it's, I, I think it's really, it's really promising that people are, you know, actually, you know, finding, you know, you know, uh, you know, showing their anger, showing how uh, this is not acceptable, and then also, you know, creating some real concrete solutions to remedy it. So it's, it's, it's encouraging. Yeah, let me talk a little bit, real briefly, push back. The, the interpretation that this is for socially engineered purposes, the police and out group, is actually not useful politically. Because where okay, do you even yeah. go from? Yeah, and, and that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to do, and I don't even know if I believe that. Um, I, don't, I don't believe there are, there are bad police officers who want to create bad racial or ethnic outcomes. I don't believe that there are bad um, residents of Mountain View who want to do that either. And even if they did, what do you do with it? How do you how do you move beyond that? How do you try to stick purely in the realm of systemic solutions? Here? That's, that's yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the thing is, it's it's not about I think antagonism as much as yeah, it's a systems problem, you need a system solution. And you know, I think yeah. you can if you can get the system solution while still not actively antagonizing individuals. Okay, good. I just I want the solution. That's yeah. what I care about. And in the systemic solution here, we know what it is. It's reducing over policing. It's putting um, putting non-police or quote-unquote civilians in charge of complaints, of overseeing those and adjudicating those, and it's just it's just reducing the number of of interactions where that could be escalated to a booking, especially for our Black and Latinx residents. Okay, so you've been you've been talking about your democratic socialist platform, and I guess my question is, you know, you've been out in this very weird year of a campaign trail. You know, it's not uh, not what you expect uh, most years for running a campaign, uh, you know, due to the pandemic. Uh, but I guess the question is, you know, what's it been like campaigning, and kind of what what kind of responses do you see to this platform? Yeah, it's it's been really wonderful, um, and the campaigning is like this. You know, we've got we've got a little piece of paper that says. Um, the main parts of the platform and we're going around lit walking this uh which means this is the literature lit walking um which means a lot of 
leaving it at voters' doors, and um, along with a way to get back in touch with me, phone number, email. And I'm getting a lot of people getting in touch with me based on that, you know, and, and we know because we walk a precinct and then people get in touch from that precinct. So you're like, oh, okay. And when I'm out uh, lit walking, my experience is people, if they're out, will take a look at the paper and take a look at me and say, are you the candidate? And then they want to talk. So I think people are, yeah, yeah people are tired of being inside and they want to talk. Plus, people underestimate how available local candidates are. We, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for everybody else, but I love having voter conversations. And uh, frequently other volunteers, if they get a, if they're text banking or phone banking and they get a tough question, they'll just be like, do you want to just call John? Here's his number. He wants to talk to you. And they, and they do. And we have a great conversation. And most of the time, those people convert to donors or volunteers themselves. So it's really a wonderful experience. And all my all my stuff says I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democratic Socialist, I'm a progressive, a left-wing guy. And people respond well to that. Um, they don't really care so much about the label. They care about the platform. And a lot of people are saying, like, this is everything I want on a platform. Wonderful. Great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as like size goes, you know, I, I I am often a critic of local control. I think there's some bad outcomes, but I think there's something nice as opposed to kind of the aldermans of, of Chicago and kind of the supervisors of San Francisco and the city council of New York. Like, it is pretty cool that, you know, the people in a city of, you know, kind of this size, you can really just, there, there are just people that you can kind of, you know, it's not that hard to kind of grab their ear. You know, yeah. that's, that is nice. Yeah, just some schlub going down the street dropping lit. So, that's pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about you know, uh, you know, I'd say I am I am always very interested in theory, and I would say of you know, I I know some people who I think I can you know find a lot of disagreements with who I think could be like orthodox Marxists who I think end up some very goofy places or at least one guy online that I, I make fun of a lot out in Berkeley but uh, no I'd say I mean for you uh, I'd say of all people that I know personally who are uh, you know would self-describe as a Marxist but I think I think would say brings them to a better direction as far as I'd say uh, direction in which I think you have I think more flexibility of thought. It doesn't lead you down to a you know you don't paint yourself into corners. Uh, I I mean I'm pretty impressed in the way that you kind of apply theory. And I, I my my question is I guess you know what is what is the role of theory and how you process you know the world around you and and kind of come <laughs> up with your modes of action and so on. Yeah. So um, I would say I, I I find value in what Marx wrote, um, <clears throat> but let's locate Marx in history. When was this guy alive? Well, he was born in 1818, and he died in 1883. Okay, so yeah. he was born 20 years after the height of the Enlightenment, after the French Revolution. Okay, so that's the world that he—that's the world he was thinking in, and he belongs more to the world of, you know, Maximilian Robespierre. He belongs more to that world and Napoleon Bonaparte more to that world than he does the world of, you know, Woodrow Wilson or, or Eugene Debs. Um, <clears throat> Marx was Marx was a, a very important thinker, but he was writing about uh, the world where industrial capitalism, that is the widespread production of commodities. That is just like we're talking about building 
shirts. You know, we didn't have shirt factories when Marx was first writing, and they certainly didn't span Europe. Uh, so we're talking about a world that's it's hard for us to even imagine. Um, so the value of Marx is, is in analyzing capitalism in its nascent stage. Um, whereas yeah. we're living in a time where <clears throat> some people call, a, you know, certainly a service economy. Some people call a post-industrial economy. I would disagree with that a little bit. But um, it's a world where we're almost like two two historical stages beyond where Marx was. We have industrial capitalism and we have maybe post-industrial or service-oriented capitalism. So the value of Marx is, is somewhat removed from the 20th century. Now, it's still critically important. You know, you have, you have wonderful thinkers like Angela Davis, okay, like David Harvey. And they're telling us, you, you, to understand Marx, you have to read him on his own terms as a person who was responding to the Enlightenment, okay? <clears throat> and so, yeah, the value of Marx is a little bit hidden from the, the present conditions. And and I'm not a person who's going out and, and quoting capital, you know, Das Capital, you know, line and verse, whatever. The, the value is not there. But the question is, how do you use theory from all the thinkers after Marx even to um, tell you what to do, tell you what campaigns to work on? <clears throat> And it's really easy. So what I say is um, I'm, a, I'm a big tent leftist, right? I, I will work with anybody on the left because the left is pretty far from power right now. We're talk we talked about this earlier. Uh, all of our solutions are market solutions. It's hard to even think beyond that. And what I'm interested in doing in the short term, by that I mean the next 10 or 20 years, is building worker power. And the power of workers to unleash the productive forces, that is the people power, the brain power, the tools and techniques and the knowledge to unleash those to solve our problems instead of waiting for private industry to come along and solve our problems at a profit, right? Hmm. So that means building unions. That means teaching people that they are in control of their own lives, especially at the city level, to, to affect the change they want, to build housing for example, and to organize ourselves. And that's something that's in Marx, sure. Uh, but that's something that predates Marx. That's something that uh, there's an American tradition of, uh, in the National Labor Relations Act, we say every worker should be unionized. Uh, and we believe in collective bargaining and collective solutions to problems. And if you take democracy really seriously, then that is a collective community statement of how we want our city and our state etc to be so um the theory comes in in the big picture yeah so i i guess my question is also you know i mean you're talking about you know kind of the change in conditions over over time you know a lot of i think some people may be in my mind unhelpfully orthodox and kind of what are class relations you know and and kind of maybe we'll boil it down and maybe i think you know like class reductionism, I think, can be really, uh, really a, a dead end in, in in my mind. But I guess my my question is, uh, you know, how do you see the role of class? I guess into the you know in a Mountain View right now, all all, all the different you know, uh, I guess you identify the class struggle there. And I guess another question is, I've been soaking my brain, uh, you know, kind of reading through different people talking about different ways that people have put in both, 
you know, Marxian and then also, uh, you know, Max Weber type uh, class analyses, which is, I think, of a different sort that has a different, you know, aspect of asset ownership as well. But I guess the question is, housing can be kind of not always the most easy fit into kind of the classical industrial production, you know, style of class relations in Marxism. I guess my question is, uh, long question. Yeah. Well, what do you kind of see as class relations in Mountain View, and then kind of what is the role of housing and classes in the way that you kind of process things? Oh, good question. So, where is where is housing in a Marxian or Marxist analysis? <clears throat> yeah. So you you look at the um, look at the means of production, the objects and the subjects. These are like the natural resources, the tools of factories. It's not there. Um, and you look at the social relations, and it is there, right? That is how we relate to each other to to recreate society day in, day out, month in, month out. We housing question decides where you live, close to your work, far away. If you depend on how you zone, how you build housing, but you're still pretty far away from from where I think it is. The the people who occupy the capital, who use it to produce commodities. Um, every day are drained of their labor power. Labor power is the commodity that they sell to sustain themselves. And every day you're drained of your labor power. You go home at night after your job, let's say, and you cook dinner and you watch someone on TV and you go to sleep. And tomorrow you wake up refreshed. The, the use of housing is to provide that ability for you to have solace, to have some security, to have some peace of mind, to know you have a place to go, a place that's your own, and it's a place to go to recharge. And that's the use value of housing in the productive, the whole mode of production we're talking about here. And now housing occupies some other positions as well. You know, housing is a commodity. We, we build it, we sell it, we buy it. It's roughly exchangeable uh, when we're talking about apartments, especially. Um, but it's also an investment for a lot of people. And once you have a certain amount of wealth, of money, of hoarded money, you can turn your money into capital by buying housing and waiting for it to appreciate. Not even necessarily talking about landlordism here, but homeownership. Um, over the last 40 years in, in Silicon Valley and, and places with hot job markets, housing was itself capital as well as a commodity for the use to replenish your labor power. Um, so when when an object occupies both a commodity position and a capital position, you're really in trouble because then you have to solve that contradiction between the use value and the exchange value. Housing itself doesn't really belie any class relations. That is relation to the, the mode of production between people. But it's sure easy to plan your future, to plan your life, your family, your career, when you have housing to fall back on, either to sell in times of want or as that security as a place to go to replenish your labor power. So housing is is a thing. It's much less important in my analysis than the social relations that describe how we build housing. And the problem of the housing crisis is that we're not unleashing the productive forces in our locality to build to the demand that we need and we can go back and forth on that but one of the factors is if we built to that level uh of demand 
maybe people wouldn't want to live here. Maybe it would be too crowded. And that's not necessarily an easy problem to solve politically or logistically in terms of sustainable building, you know, for climate change. Yeah, I mean, I you could. I mean, I think housing it serves many roles, but one part is definitely. I mean, there are people who say cities are mainly understood as job markets. You know, it is it is the reason cities exist. You know, more or less, it's to get people together to work. I I think you know there's some you know kind of uh, you know vacation communities or something, but that's that's you know not too important in the big scale of things. And I mean, Silicon Valley, it's a it's a weird case, you know, is this is one of the more productive areas in a certain sense that if you especially if you come in with a certain amount of skills, uh, it, it gives you know workers an ability to be more productive in the sense of at least, you know, what they get to take home, but they have to pay a lot for it. And there's other people, too, who I think, you know, even if you aren't working in a tech like tech job capacity, you know the economy is strong. There's a lot of different, you know, it's it's a it's a lot of different jobs you can do to support everyone else in the community, and it all. Uh, but the same thing is, you have to pay a lot to to be part of it, and I think that's kind of the the nutty thing here is, you know, it's you make a lot, you it costs a lot, and yeah. you know it's not it's not great because I think uh, ideally you have a place where workers, you know, don't don't get soaked with you know. With their housing housing costs. Well, let's go back to let's go back to the early part of the housing crisis and do that commodity analysis to see where things maybe went wrong. So let's just say the early '80s is when um, Silicon Valley job growth really took off, and you have housing. It's mostly a commodity here. There, it, it does slowly grow in value over time, but it's not explosive. It's not the eight percent year over year increases we've seen in the last ten years, not on average, but in the big years. Um, so there's a hot job market and we don't build enough housing to catch up. The housing price uh, starts going, the index, let's say, starts going up by, you know, 8% a year. So you have a commodity, which is now an investment and it's growing more on average than the stock uh, indexes are, the S&P, for example. So uh, you create this problem where year after year, people, people who have the means to buy housing are coming in and investing. And you're creating a situation where politically now it's harder to solve the housing crisis because if you build up to demand or nearly build up to demand, then those people's investment then appreciates at a much lower rate. So politically you have a problem where to invest in your community, you have to divest from the residents of your community, uh, which Mm. is in some sense anti-democratic, but in a broader sense, it's just politically difficult. So the longer this goes on, the harder problem it is to solve. That's my Marxian commodity analysis for you. Sure, sure. So if I were to like kind of say, you know, I, I think you're saying that, you know, in your in your, you know, uh, you know, theoretical lens, you know, it's you know, housing is not part of the class relations. And this is, you know, this is Marxian class relations, which are, you know, defined basically by uh you know production and, and work I, I guess like i i i don't you know i mean i would say i'm influenced i'm influenced by henry george i'm influenced by all sorts of you know uh, people but i would certainly say my own kind of you know thought is there are many class struggles going on simultaneously and uh, this is i was just like reading one one uh you know kind of uh interesting book kind of describing housing and class conflict and the question is like do communities act because locality based interests 
and this is, you know, I think describing in the Marx's, you know, Marx's sense, I think this is one thing that I, I think I, of all things I really respect in the ideas of Marx, I think is the idea of saying your material interests influence you more than you know, you know, even if you're not aware of it, you know, they, you know, you are influenced by objective material, uh, you know, material uh, investments and any kind of thing that you actually, uh, and this, this essentially will put people into, you know, crowds where they will act even without knowing it simultaneously. And the question is, could this happen for, for housing? And, you know, I think if you look in certain ways, when you have some people who have different material, you know, uh, stakes, you know, this is some people, uh, they have an investment in, in real estate that accumulates. Some people are renters who, uh, and this is not only the equity they have, there's like listed, you know, there's also the amount of stability, autonomy, the amount of security, all these different things that make a big difference in, you know, what your material interests are in a way. And I, I, I definitely am sympathetic. I mean, in fact, I believe it <laughs> to the idea that I do think that, you know, the material interest of your own housing stake can create what, in a certain sense, I guess divorced from the Marxian uh, you know, sense, is a class interest. I think people can work together, and I think solidarity can exist in that sense. Uh, I mean, I don't know if, if Marx would say that, you know, uh, workplace production has a monopoly on solidarity, but I believe that locality, residential, habitation-based solidarity is coherent, and I believe I believe it can exist, and I think that there is the a possibility of action to help people, you know, live better. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, I mean, totally. Um, so there's a lot to this question, but I will say that... Um, I'm not sure it was a question. But <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot to respond to. Um, the, the necessary condition for the, de- the development of solidarity and, and working class solidarity is the fact that, you know, historically, I got to say, Marxian theory, Marxism, whatever, is a theory of history, historical dialectical materialism, and it's long term. So it's not it's not about the short term struggles over where we build housing, who has access to it. Um, but the theory talks about how when when workers come from uh, spread out in the countryside and they come to the city to work in the factories that's when they realize how interconnected and crucial they are to each other's lives for building and rebuilding the city, the factory, the commodities. And it becomes increasingly difficult to tell who is contributing what value. If we work on an assembly line, you and I, Mark, and you you turn a knob and I stamp a thing on the commodity and then it rolls off, how much value did you contribute? How much value did I contribute? That problem becomes harder the more the more moving pieces we have. In a city, talk about what's happening in one of the big tech companies. You have a hundred thousand people working on some, you know, big mound of software. That's a wacky yeah. scenario. Yeah, and it and and it becomes harder to determine who's contributing what value. And when we have a tech company with a cafeteria, what do cafeteria workers contribute to the knowledge workers' output in the afternoon after they eat lunch? It's a lot, and we're currently undervaluing it. Um, but when you have a when you have a city, one of the one of the the motors here contributing to working class solidarity is the proximity everyone is in. So yes, that's something you said, which is you know locality based solidarity is extremely real. 
that's that's a big part of the Marxist motor of history, that historical materialism. Um, so that's not separate from um, from Marxian analysis. That's a crucial part of it. And uh, yeah, I just I just wanted to step in defend that a little bit. And so you talked another another about uh, theory of individual action and how the material reality of our lives and our investments and where we live and what we do contributes to our decisions. Yeah, in the in the Marxian sense, it's that it's that base and superstructure. So that's sort of the first the first thing contributing to my decisions is the material reality of my life, what I need to do to feed myself, to live, to clothe myself, to work. And, uh, but also ideas contribute to it. For example, ideas about what is, what vehicles are and are not blight on our streets and mountain view, or what kinds of people who we may be, we may be prejudiced against different types of people and say, cut them out of my community. Those come in too. And those are not rooted to to the material basis. So Marxism and uh, Marxism, Hegelianism, other these theories are not saying that the material base exists on its own. And um, that's what people deride as maybe vulgar Marxism or sure. class reductionism. And that is not a part of Marx. So um, he's always very clear that in the the theoretical and intellectual, ideological. Um, questions come in too after the material questions and they repeatedly combine and recombine and recombine and that's the Marxian dialectic over time I guess my only you say he's very clear about it I guess I hope he was more clear and you get less of these vulgar you know vulgar class reductionists out there yeah uh well one, one thing too is I, I was just like you know reading one one note about kind of you know I think you know it's a paraphrase of Marx talking about class consciousness and saying it depends upon you know different you know different conditions he talks about it depends upon technical conditions such as advanced communication systems uh, social conditions such as the proximity of numerous workers in modern factories and political conditions such as a non-repressive liberal state uh, and in this sense I mean it kind of my because my brain is diseased I think land use and I think when you talk about the social conditions like I do absolutely think that the lessening of class consciousness and the decrease of the labor movement in America in no small part is connected to increasing suburbanization and I would say isolation in a lot of sense from one another uh, that I don't think we really we don't rub shoulders as much anymore. And I think that absolutely, whether at a workplace, uh, you know, uh, makes it harder for us to uh, to, I think, develop, I think, strong, uh, you know, a strong labor movement for one thing. And, and our enemies know it. Our enemies know that if they can keep us atomized then they're going to they're going to keep away solidarity and the simplest example is uh, i can't remember if it was it was either early this year or late last year the um, national labor relations board the trump nlrb said that um, workers who want to unionize cannot use the workplace email even in after hours so you can't use workplace mm. email or slack and and it's just straight up from what you read it's cutting down the efficient communication system because the more worker-to-worker -worker contact, the more we realize solidarity with each other, the more that when cafeteria workers at Google have a work stoppage, the more that the software engineers say, hey, this is my struggle too. The more of that, the more worker solidarity, the stronger the labor movement is. So in general, yeah, getting us to the suburbs, getting us to the countryside, um, it's a fine thing if you want to live there, but it's also in 
doing public investment in white flight, for example, by making that easier for the conservatives, for the reactionaries, you have the win-win of, of weakening the labor movement. So you're right. Yeah, and I think I mean the solidarity. I, th- it's, I think it's a crime that you know you have you know the people who can afford it. You know they get their uh, you know their high salaries and in, in the in the the, uh, the tech job they'll live somewhat close to work, but the people who work in the cafeterias more likely than not have a pretty bad commute. You know, yeah. I mean some t- some people I don't want to say that as as a rule, but I, it would be nice if you know you had a good chance of living you know down the street you know across the hall from you know, someone in your workplace, but there is, I think, a, a, a deep social stratification and a, and people being removed in space as a result. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think the land use we have absolutely, I think, can tear us apart and in, 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 in undermine solidarity in that sense. Yeah, I, I agree, definitely. Yeah, so, um, I don't know, I, I could I could probably, you know, just talk about stupid uh, you know, theory stuff all day, but we have been talking for, for a while, uh, so, uh, any, any thoughts that kind of come to come to mind that you want to, you know, get off, you know, your your, your chest? Well, I want to I wanna apologize to all the uh, Marxists who are listening. I'm not a theoretician, and uh, <laughs> if I butchered something, you know, email me, talk to me about it. But what I'm doing here is... Um, <clears throat> I'm not even running for city council so I can spread these theories, right? I'm running for city council because I, like I said, I want to contribute to worker power and I am, what I want is for when I'm going out campaigning and I speak to someone about how we can have effective rent control, how we can have housing security, how we can build housing where people can afford to live there how we can rein in the police budget, how we can have public safety for our black and Latinx residents, and how we can stand up to orgs that are pushing us around, like the California Apartment Association. And when I'm going out and having these conversations with people, and I see the light bulb going on in their head saying, this guy is willing to fight for me, or even better, I'm willing to fight for myself and my community and organize, I see... I've seen hundreds of people have that light bulb moment, that transformation. And what I want to do while I'm running is I want to organize Mountain View so we can collectively solve these big issues, get past the housing crisis, et cetera. I'm not going to run through my list again. Don't worry. But I want to create an active, engaged city. We have a progressive city. We have a, a Mountain View is one of the most progressive cities in our region. And I want to organize Mountain View and I want to create leaders for decades to come who we won't be afraid of the problems we're afraid of right now of housing insecurity and so on so that's why i'm running so thanks for having me on yeah thanks so much for being here it's been a lot of fun we have a talking to john lashley candidate for mountain view city council all about his platform theory and more you can find this program and all previous episodes of the henry george program at the website see the cat.org it's a presentation of Keyes Issue, Stanford.